really go in phases where I'll be deep in philosopher mode and that life is very different than like right now. Most people when they're challenged, they're overwhelmed, they're getting knocked around by life is when they do the addictive, numbing, destructive behaviors. But what if in that moment you feel terrible, you get more committed to doing the things you do when you're at your best. When life hits me, I double down on my practices. My meditation becomes deeper, my training, my sleeping, um, my focus at work. Um, and I use that challenge that used to send me off the rails, you know, and doing the things I know aren't best for me to actually literally get stronger. Today's guest is Brian Johnson, the founder and CEO of Heroic Public Benefit Corporation. In his own words, he's 50% philosopher, 50% CEO, and 101% committed to helping create a world in which 51% of humanity is flourishing by the year 2051. As a founder and CEO, he's made crowdfunding history and built and sold two social platforms. As a philosopher and teacher, he's helped millions of people from around the world, trained more than 10,000 heroic coaches from more than 100 countries, and created a protocol that science says changes lives. He lives in the country outside Austin, Texas in the US of A with his wife, Alexandra, and their two kids, Emerson and Eleanor. Brian's work is really transformational, so I'm excited to have him on the show to share his amazing journey and the practical tools and techniques that have helped him achieve success. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave a review, like, comment and subscribe. You know the drill. It would mean the world to me and will help this podcast reach as many people as possible. You don't want to miss this. Enjoy. So Brian, welcome to the show. My first question for you in life, what's the most important thing you've ever had to pitch for? Dominic, we're starting out, we're starting out strong. What is the most <laughs> important thing I've ever had to pitch for? A few things come in, but you know, my wife wins. So uh, I've been with my wife for 17 years now and uh, pitching her uh, on being together, getting married, and then frankly, repitching, you know, for me, life is not a one and done thing. It's a, it's a being worthy of that. Um, so my relationship with her, pitching my kids, on their potential on how to show up in their lives as a day-to-day -day thing and then there's you know business things i've raised you know um a fair amount of money at this point we made crowdfunding history with heroic public benefit corporation that was an important pitch in my life the book we're launching right now um but i love it i, I love what you do i love the concept of how important it is to tell a good story and to connect and to, you know, create a vision that people are inspired by and excited by and they want to be part of. So I'd say my most, to answer the actual question, it's, it's this movement we're trying to create. We're trying to um, pitch individuals on the idea and the fact that they are the heroes we've been waiting for. And if we want to change the world, then each of us needs to step up and be that best, most heroic version of ourselves. So I'll answer at the end, with that, that's the most important pitch. And it's one that I'm engaged in right this second. Um, and it's what I've dedicated my life to um, and uh, tattooed my body with all the other things. <laughs> I love that. Um, I, I, I think the idea that you, you raise there that the, the pitch is always evolving, that, that we're always repitching for things is, is so important. Um, I'll, I'll, we'll dig into some of these themes uh, as we go through the podcast, but, but that's definitely something I'd like to come back to. Uh, so if, if heroic and the heroic movement is the, the big pitch to the world at the moment, um, what's the one that's got away? Do you, do you have any regrets? Do you think, oh, if I could have changed that, I'd, have, I'd love to have seen a different outcome? Wow. Um, I'm, I'm not seeing anything come up in my mind, although my felt sense is, oh my God, this could be a really long conversation. How many <laughs> times I didn't, and what I'm thinking right now is it's less like the pitches I gave that didn't come through and more the pitches I didn't have the courage to give. Yeah. And you know, that that's a, it's goosebumps. One of those things for me, I call it fear doors, that the best things in my life came on the other side of a tremendous amount of fear. Like I won a business plan competition at UCLA's Anderson School of Business when I was like 24 years old, but I almost didn't show up. 
Right. Literally, because I was so afraid we weren't ready and the business sucked and I didn't have the money and I'm sitting at Kinko's. Do I do color copies or black and white? I can't afford either. You know, and I, it was like I didn't want to be there and all those things. So what arises for me is the countless unknowable number of, of moments that I didn't step forward. But again, yeah. for me, the way I, I frame up my life and what I teach our community is, it's not the big moments, it's the little moments where we build the trust and we're, we're establishing that trust in ourselves and confidence such that we can handle the big opportunities. But if you're not taking care of the small things and quote, pitching yourself moment to moment to moment, um, to live, you know, with the word I've got on my t-shirt, to live with Arte, to be your best self. Like that's a pitch. Who are you yeah. listening to? Are you listening to the best version of yourself or the less than best version of yourself? You want to, you win that pitch. You're going to win all the, you're not going to win all the others, but you're going to be in a position to win more of the other pitches in your life. Yeah. I, I, it's that, it's that sort of step-by-step -step process, isn't it? I, I think about it sometimes as as like the the need to jump out the plane and just sort of trust that that parachute is is gonna take you there, and those those moments of fear where where you you need to have the courage to just take that first step when you when you look back at it that initial step was so small, but the payoff is is so huge. Um, you're you're building uh, a movement. You describe yourself as fifty percent philosopher, fifty percent CEO. Uh, how did those two worlds collide? Like, what's what's your story? As a kid, did you want to build businesses? Were you interested in you know the meaning of life? Where does this come from? Yeah, another great question. Um... As a kid, I mean, just the quick biographical sketch going back from when I was a kid, youngest of five kids. My mom got married at 17 to my dad, who had just come out of the Navy, had her first kid the next year. 13 years later, I'm born. Lower middle class, blue collar family. My father worked in a grocery store, devout Catholic family, went to Catholic school for 12 years. Um, and, you know, kind of the golden child in a, in a, in a, in a great family, my dad worked hard, but he struggled with alcohol and things that go with that. His father struggled with alcohol and ended his own life. Um, and uh, first generation college student. And I, I always had a drive to excel, um, but it wasn't until I read Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People while I was, while I was at UCLA, um, yeah. when I was introduced to the idea, oh, wow, I could actually create a life of purpose and meaning. That's amazing. Um, but then I got a job I hated. I threw up on the 405 freeway in Los Angeles on the way home from work. You know, I'm like, I don't want to do this. Went to law school, dropped out of law school. I didn't want to do that. Um, and then I suffered. And, you know, the only thing I knew I wanted to do when I'm 23 years old, other than coach the Little League baseball team, was, was end my own life, you know? And I couldn't figure out how I take this energy that I have right now and apply it in a meaningful way in the world. Mm. Um, and for whatever set of reasons, didn't do that. And then, you know, created more and more meaning in my life as I just really dove into what have all of the great ancient wisdom teachers and modern scientists have to say and have they said about how to live a great noble life and make a significant difference in the world um, while creating a life of sustainable joy and meaning. But but it's really important because that that upbringing and my own suffering have deeply informed who I am and how I mm -hmm. show up and the people that I strive to serve. Um, and we've been blessed to serve people from people that don't want to get out of bed in the morning to people performing at the most elite levels in the military, corporate sports, etc. But anyway, that's now a long, somewhat meandering kind of um, non-answer to your great question. No, there you not go. at all. It's, it's, it's fascinating to kind of see where that, where that journey takes you. When when you you know went to uh, university for for that first kind of undergraduate degree, did, was there a passion there? Were, were, were you you know were you were you heading down a particular path or or, or you know no, was, it, was it just being yeah, I open? Studied, I studied psychology and business, and even then I was passionate about what at the time I framed it as understanding what makes great people great. The point oh 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 one percent of the people that go out and change the world like that has been. Um, kind of a, a, I wouldn't say, well, but it's been a driving obsession of mine, you know, but, it, but it wasn't really formed then. It was just this intuitive, wow, what, what, what is it about them? You know? Um, but at UCLA in the mid nineties, there was nothing, um, positive about the psychology being studied. So I want to study leadership, but 
it was autism that was being focused on at UCI. That right. wasn't what I wanted to do. Positive psychology didn't exist yet. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, there was a, a, a driving desire to understand that. And I wanted to understand it scientifically. So that's always also been a really deep drive. Um, you know, I think the modern secular religion is science. So combining my passion for ancient wisdom, I prefer the ancient Stoics and modern science. Cognitive behavioral therapy is Stoicism applied, you know, I mean, th those right. connections have always um, really, really grabbed me, but then making it practical um, in my own challenges and my own ambition combined, um, I think have have given me um, kind of the fuel to just really go all in on it. And also a very low tolerance for doing things that I'm not passionate about. So my joke is I'm a neuron. I either fire or I don't. I'm either into something or not. I'm not the kind of guy that can show up and just do the thing and grind through something for years at a time, you know? Um, so I think that's, you know, played to my advantage over the long run, not without, you know, the, the ups and downs and the challenges that come yeah. as we try to live a good life. Um, but those are some of the other variables that, that um, come up. You, you mentioned a, a pitching competition at, at UCLA. Where, where did that kind of entrepreneurial spark fit into that journey? Yeah, so I was not the kid that was creating businesses as a kid and doing that stuff. I was the little nerdy, smallest kid in high school, you know, straight A student and all those things. Business and I were never, it wasn't my thing. Um, and then when I dropped out of law school, I coached a Little League baseball team. Previous to going to law school, I did some consulting in 1997 and okay. databases were becoming big. And so I was helping a client with that, with this big professional services firm. And when I coached this Little League baseball team, we sucked. Like, we had no idea what we were doing. And our team literally was like, oh, and six, you know, and everybody's like, this isn't fun. And I just, you know, I had this vision that 1998 now, that every single team and league in the world would be using the web for everything, like an ESPN mm -hmm. for youth sports. And I could just see it. Um, and I created a business to do that. But again, the big driver was there was no way I was going back and doing the things I had done before, you know, like, like the idea of doing that led to nausea and also led to the I can't no way. Um, so again, it was it was a uh, it wasn't like, oh, yeah, I want to create a business. It was, oh, shoot, that's cool. But then I could see it. Then yeah. I can see a million teams on the platform. And then mm. again, I. I I could feel it. I had really smart people. Chairman of the board of very large company uh, told me, you're crazy. You can't do that. You have no money. You have no experience. You don't know anybody. And there's no need. No one even wants this. Good luck. He literally told me, take another hit off of that pipe is what he told me. I'm like, all right, buddy. But that, that, that fires me up. You know, all right, let's go. Um, but that's kind of what led me to, um, to start the first business. And, and, th and that was E-Teams, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, and you raised, you raised $5 million for, for that business. So how, how does someone with the experience that you describe, you know, of, of being a complete rookie in this, um, realm go about raising serious capital like that? Yeah. So if we rewind before I raised that money, you can see $5,000 in my retirement account that I had saved over a year, cracked open that piggy bank. My co-founder, who was a brilliant technologist, did the same with what money he had, 10 grand. And over the course of a year, we built, you know, I, we hustled and we built something that thousands of teams were using. So then we show up at this event. Um, and, and I, I've been skilled at sharing the vision of what's possible. And it was a clearly an opportunity that we had demonstrated um, a level of success on. And the guy that put the first million in introduced me and said, this guy can get a lot done on nothing and he can recruit people who can do um, some great things with him. And that was before I wound up hiring the CEO of Adidas to replace me at 25 years old as the CEO of what was then a very popular dot-com business. Yeah. Um, so that's another pitch, but I think that it's Joseph Campbell 101, you know, when you, when you truly follow your bliss, as he would say, you do what you feel inspired to do, doors will appear where there were only once walls and these mm. hidden hands will come to help you. And there's, so there's a felt sense of what I now call soul force or moral charisma that someone can feel in the presence of someone who is, who is on fire with an idea. Um, and is demonstrating a certain level of competence in their ability to execute it. 
Um, and I think I had that at a young age um, and I demonstrated the ability to, you know, in the, in the business context, get customers enough with a vision of, well, you can connect the dots if we can do this many and there are that many millions of, of teams around the world. And we wound up serving three million um, I wanted a million teams. Did I want a million people or a million teams? I don't remember. A million teams. I mean, it was insane. We had three million at our peak. So I wanted it in five years, by the way. We got there in four. Um, so the guy who told me it was impossible um, became the fuel for um, making it happen. That's, that's really interesting. Quite a few people that I've, I've spoken to on the podcast have, have that, you know, slight nemesis figure that, that drives them forward to, to say, hey, look, I, I, I back myself. I believe in myself and actually there's fuel in, in that resistance um, and, and in that moment. Uh, your your next business um, was uh, Zaz, and that was felt felt much more kind of purpose led. So, and, and I and I feel like that's maybe where the the kind of philosophy piece starts to to come in. Um, so, what, what you know, what made you want to go again? I suppose a lot of a lot of people go, hey, I've I've created a successful business. Um, you know, l- let me move to the countryside and and, and enjoy myself. Yeah, so the business wound up succeeding for our investors, but it took 10 years. So I wound up selling okay. E-Teams right after the market crashed in 2000. And I got enough to, to you know, take a little bit of time off. But that time was like two or three years. All right, let's go. Um, and so after selling that and transitioning it, I now I'm like 26, 27 years old. What do I want to do when I grow up kind of thing? And I, I knew at that moment that I wanted to dedicate my life to understanding how to live a good life and help others do the same. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I traveled a bit and I studied Socrates in Athens and, and Jesus in Jerusalem and Rumi in Turkey and Aurelius um, near the Danube in Hungary. Um, and then I didn't want to be, I started teaching and doing that, but I kind of, I, I didn't want to be on a stage doing that stuff. That wasn't my mm-hmm. thing. And I needed to make money again. So then I had the vision for, this is before Facebook. MySpace was kind of big at this time, 2000, yeah. whatever it was, yeah. three maybe. Um, and I could see that there was a platform that, that I could create that would bring together people who want to make a difference in the world. And so I raised a few million dollars for that using my background in social technology. Um, John Mackey of Whole Foods, we partnered with his nonprofit on conscious capitalism, wound up investing, nearly bought us. Um, and so I went from, you know, CEO to philosopher back to CEO. And then I got to a point where I wanted to get back to the CEO. So after a few years, I sold it to a different publicly traded company. Um, and we, we had 250,000 people in this platform before Facebook yeah. 18 yeah. years ago. Um, and that company died a sad death as many companies, startups that are acquired by publicly traded companies do. And then I waited, then I, then I moved to Bali for a year and all I did was read and write and teach again and went back into the philosopher mode. Um, but then I waited for 18 years for someone to create an alternative to Facebook, Instagram, an answer to the social dilemma, um, yeah. which became the nucleus for um, what I'm doing now. But but that's kind of how I got into that. And it's been a very much a this, then that, this, then that. And now it's a how do I integrate the two um, mm-hmm. and, and embody qualities of both the philosopher and the teacher and the CEO and the leader. I, I think that's a really kind of interesting tension to hold, you know, those, those two archetypes. Um, what have you developed in your toolkit to allow, allow you to flow between the two? Because, uh, you know, from the, from the content I've, I've consumed, you're, you're very good at, at holding, you know, space for the deep work for, um, you know, thinking for being, um, and yet the, the kind of challenge, I suppose, when you're in CEO mode is that everyone wants a bit of your time and you've, you've got to be in a million different places at once. So what's your strategy for, for dealing with that? Another great question. Um, well, I have two of my heroes behind me. I got Epictetus and I have Aurelius. And then I got my kids, I got my wife um, and um, a few other heroes. But um, I, I really admire Epictetus and Aurelius, and Aurelius in particular, as that reluctant emperor who really wanted to be the philosopher, but played his role well. And I feel like um, 
that it's important for me to figure out how to integrate it. So that's kind of the driving mm -hmm. force is figure this out. And I've been a hermit, bubble wrapped. I mean, I didn't use my phone for a year, email, and all I did was read and write and think and teach. But a big part of it was I wanted to be worthy of sharing some wisdom and to feel like I had done the work necessary on myself and on my own intellectual development to understand what these great teachers said, um, again, ancient and modern, um, and then figure out how to how to integrate it in a really practical way. And then I've always had this ambition, uh, entrepreneurially and creatively more than anything. Um, but you know, that's the high level. And then practically speaking, um, I really go in phases where I'll be deep in philosopher mode. And that life is very different than like right now. Right now, right. I'm doing a ton of shows, we're launching the book and it, all that kind of stuff. But I've also I'm blessed to have a team um, and my right hand guy runs our business. You know, he's phenomenal and he's taking care of the team. The team is so empowered and um, does such a great job. And I'm, I'm pretty good at identifying what it is that I and only I can do and then leveraging yeah. and, and empowering others to do what they can do better than me um, while appropriately leading. Um, but then I'm also ruthless. Like I, I will clear my calendar completely for one thing, when I say that's the most important thing, you know, Peter Drucker 101 style, first things first, second things not, not at all. Right. And again, I'll be all in and all I'll do is, is, you know, talks like this, um, when that's what the business needs from me and that's what I need <laughs> to do creatively. Um, but I'll also flip the switch. I'm writing the book dark. No one's getting okay. in touch with me. I'm putting the final touches on the book. See you in a week or in a month. Let's go. You know, so I'm, Again, that neuron of I decide what's important and then I structure my life around it and I create, again, what Drucker calls large quantums of time. So yeah. to solve really important things, whether it's writing a book that I'm proud of or launching the book in a way that I'm proud of, um, I'm willing to re-architect my days in, and weeks in order to achieve the thing I said is most important, um, period. Is that something you've learned to do or is that something that you always had the ability to do? I mean, let's assume you've always had the ability to do it, but, it, but is, that, is that a learned behavior? And, and what, what were the kind of steps in refining that? Because I know no is probably one of the hardest words to say in the English language. Yeah, well, this is, again, another great, great question. So uh, clearly, there's something in me that gave me a lower tolerance for doing the what I would consider not what I'm here to do. Um, and yeah. it's very much a cultivated skill to get comfortable at it. And one of the main tools that I've used, it's Stephen Covey. If you want to say and there's I can give you a bunch of references, David Brooks, etc. But if you want to say no to something, you need to have a deeper yes. Yeah. So you know, I, I'm all in, as I've mentioned, you know, I I've, I've have a very clear mission of what I want to do over the next 25 years. Um, and, and I have a very, very deep, profound yes, you know, and on this arm, I've got, you know, another tattoo that calls me to be my best self. Um, and then I just don't care. I, I care so much. I don't care is one of my mentors, what one of my mentors told me, you know, and again, I'm a blessed to have a team to do their thing. Yeah. Um, but I get clear on what I want to achieve and what I think it's going to take for me to get there. And then I do what I need to do to, um, to make that happen. But it's been a very iterative, um, uh, evolution for me. And now I've got enough reps in where, um, uh, I feel much more comfortable and confident in, um, in going all in and focusing my energy on what I've decided is most important, which is a key part of my whole philosophy, by the way, is you got to get your energy focused on what's important. Now, most people diffuse it and they never do anything really at the highest possible level because they're doing too mm -hmm. many things. And I've, I've intellectually understand that I've experienced enough times that now it's it's much easier for me to do that. Um, and to enjoy doing it unapologetically saying no, as Covey says, Gandhi says the same thing. David Brooks says you need a soul aching goal, just a soul aching goal in order to say no to the nonsense that's that's, you know, trying to consume your attention, etc. I'm sure there are people listening to this thinking, I, you know, I, well, I've, I've got, a, I've got a goal, I've got something that I sort of want to do. But you know, Brian's saying soul aching, is it is it quite soul aching? Like how, how would you 
recommend people essentially distill what it is that they want to do? How do, how do they, how do they find that kind of North star? Yeah, I think that one of the exercises I do, um, is to help people wake up to the fact that this isn't a dress rehearsal, you know, so the, the burnout, the overwhelm, 80% of us have anxiety, depression, etc. And frankly, it's not because we're working too hard at our dreams. It's because we're grinding on things we don't really want to be doing. And then we're numbing ourselves with the binge watching, the binge drinking, the binge eating or whatever else we do. And we all have our own habits. No shame. It is what it is. Um, and all of us are experiencing it on one level or another. So I think there's practical things we can talk about. But I think energetically, the first step is you got to realize, and I know this is obvious, but it's not a dress rehearsal. Like this <laughs> is it, you know, and what are you waiting for? And uh, you got to activate at a certain point of intensity and energy and act like you mean it. One yeah. of the exercises I do is called a quick trip to hell. Um, a lot of people do eulogy exercises. How do you want to be remembered and this sort of thing? Stephen yeah. Covey, you know, David Brooks, etc. which is really important because you want to know that no one's going to talk about the square footage in your house, the initials after your name, all of the accolades you achieved, your fame, your wealth, your hotness doesn't matter. It just doesn't. Now, fine. Yeah. Do what you need to do to get what you need there. But focus on what matters, which is who you are as a person, deepening your relationships and making a contribution. The intrinsic motivators scientists say lead to happiness. But anyway, the exercise I have is you're on your deathbed. I precede that by, all right, who are you at your best? And people don't spend time thinking about this. It's like a muscle mm -hmm. that's not used. But scientists say, a best selves diary is a really powerful way to build hope and agency. So pause for a moment. Think about yourself in five years. You've worked hard. You've gotten a little lucky and life has come together. What does your life look like? Now, most people, when they think about that, I like, draw a blank. I have no idea. It's like asking them to do an Ironman triathlon and they haven't been training. And you got to yeah. work that consciousness muscle. But it's really important to get clear that there is, as Abraham Maslow says, who studied the self-actualizing individuals, he says what one can be, one must be. Your need to actualize your potential is a fundamental need that's as real as your need to breathe, I say. It's like soul oxygen. So imagine yourself at your best, and to the extent there's a gap between who you could have been in any given moment and who you actually are being, you're gonna experience a level of, of subtle or not so subtle despair. Mm -hmm. So we want to get clear on who we are at our best. And then the exercise I have to finally make the point is you imagine yourself on your deathbed. You didn't live the things you knew you could have lived to be your best self. Um, and right before you pass away, the, the version of you you could have been walks in through the door. And that version of you that didn't do the things you could have done sees the version of you you could have been. Some say that's one take on hell right when you can't do anything about it, you see who you could have been, boom, gone, boom, done, you're gone. Um, anyway, that's part of my ultimate pitch for people is wake up. And I got all the different kind of avenues for it. But I think yeah. there's this um, critical, cynical, nihilistic attitude we have. We're showing up with a level of enthusiasm and passion and desire to create a life of meaning for yourself, for your kids, etc. You know, there's a little bit of an edge to that that I think we need to bring in and, and be willing to unplug. Now the practical tools are unplug. Yeah. Turn off your electronics for longer than two minutes. You mm -hmm. know, allow your consciousness to reflect on these questions. And um, that's hard work. And uh, frankly, most people don't want to do that. You know, there's a level of now nice. it's easier for me to go look at the news and the chaos and complain about it and be a victim about it rather than again, step up and be the hero of their own story, you know? It's fascinating that that fear of, of switching off. I'm in, in two weeks, I'm off to a silent retreat and I'm going to be off, you know, off grid for, I don't know, five, five days. And conversations I've had with people about like, what, no, no phone, you, you, you can't read. It's like, yeah, <laughs> that uh, only, only with that level of disconnect can, can you really reconnect? I suppose. And, and I think that's one of the challenges that we, we face. You use the word dress rehearsal and, and as a, as an actor, that, that kind of makes me smile because 
I think in in public perception, a dress rehearsal is where things can be a little bit messy. But as as the actor stepping out onto stage, like that dress rehearsal is your is your final chance. Right? Yeah. You've got you've got to get there, and you, you you've got to nail it. Yeah. But the but the one thing that is going to get you through every single performance is that moment of presence. And mm. and actors, you know, often get referred to as people that have presence and and people kind of say to me well what, what, what is that and and i'm always my answer is it's about being in the moment it's about really being there with that other person that you're conversing with and you know, whatever your stage whether your stage is you know business or whether your stage is a, a three thousand seater theater i think those those same sort of same same principles apply um you you've obviously had uh, a huge amount of success, but you've also ad- alluded to the fact that there there are always setbacks uh, along the way. So uh, how how do you build resilience to to keep moving forward um, towards those goals that are tattooed on your arms? Yeah, um, another wonderful question. So, and I love your dress rehearsal. That's so cool. I'm gonna have to figure out how I weave that into my pitches with people. <laughs> Come on, baby. Um, it's all simultaneously the live performance and the dress rehearsal for the next better performing. Mean, it's so cool. You know, yeah. do your best moment, moment, moment. That's really cool. Um, so I actually go beyond resilience to what I call anti-fragility. And um, it's one of the, the kind of fundamental parts of my work. Um, forging what I call anti-fragile confidence, where you have so much trust in yourself, which is what confidence means, intense trust, Mm -hmm. that not only are you not breaking fragile when life hits you, um, you move past being resilient to being anti-fragile, where the more life challenges you, the stronger you get. So the practical way that I do that is when life hits me, I double down on my practices. My meditation becomes deeper, my training, my sleeping, um, my focus at work, Um, And I use that challenge that used to send me off the rails, you know, and doing the things I know aren't best for me to actually literally get stronger. And I can give you examples of how I've done that over the last couple of years with Heroic. But my coach, Phil Stutz, works with, you know, a lot of Hollywood's elite. He's in the Netflix documentary called Stutz with Jonah Hill. They do a great job of making these ideas approachable. Um, I've worked with him for seven years, 400 one-on-one sessions. In one of the early sessions, he he ended it by saying, hey, you have a lot of emotional stamina. And I'm like, maybe the most I've seen, he said. I'm like, oh, that's amazing. Thanks. Appreciate that. No idea what that means, but that sounds good. You know, next session, what's what's emotional? Yeah, literally, I wrote it down. All right, prepping for my session. Emotional stamina, what is that? And he says emotional stamina is what you'd expect. You you can handle challenges and you can endure the uncertainty and, and pain of, of, of life and, and keep on responding powerfully. But then he said something that got tattooed on my brain that I have repeated countless times, which is the way you cultivate emotional stamina, which I now call anti-fragile confidence, is this. The worse you feel, the more committed you are to your protocol. So most people, when they're challenged, they're overwhelmed, they're getting knocked around by life, is when they do the addictive, numbing, destructive behaviors. But what if in that moment you feel terrible, you get more committed to doing the things you do when you're at your best? If you can do that, you, again, you literally become anti-fragile, even getting three, five, 10% better. Um, For example, I raised you know, $11 million for 15 million by this point for Heroic Public Benefit Corporation. I'm two days away from launching an app. We spent at that time, five, six, seven, eight million million on. We worked for 15 months to build the app. We're launching it two days before we launch the app. We're live streaming it to thousands of people. Hundreds of our investors are in town, blah, 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 blah. I get a letter. The UPS driver shows up. We're friends, you know, hey, how you doing? We have a little connection. Letterhead heroic legal department. We don't have a legal department. You know, I got great attorneys. We don't have a legal department. Then went along for it. My heart rate goes up a little bit. You know, legal department's never a positive thing. Zip it open, letterhead, securities and exchange commission, strike two, heart rate on the aura ring is going up. (laughs) I got my my whole team at my ranch. Literally, they're in my kitchen right now. It's 9 a.m., two days before we launch. Everyone's in town, right? Oh, and by the way, I'm usually a pretty anxious dude before I give a talk. I told my wife the night before, I'm ready. 
the app, it, it works, people are responding to it really powerfully, I know what I'm gonna do in my talk, and I'm gonna enjoy this weekend, is what I told her the night before. I'm like, I'm finally going to enjoy it during it instead of afterwards. Mm -hmm. So anyway, the following morning, I get this sequence of events with the letter. Anyway, I go out, I'm reading the letter, and they opened up an investigation into our crowdfunding. We had made history. We were the first company to ever raise $5 million via their new um, regulations. We have 3,000 investors from 75 countries around the world. Now, I'm reading that, and my heart you know, goes up. And, and I'm also, we did everything at the highest level. I, the, yeah. Okay, it is what it is, and that sucks, but <clears throat> we're good. Like, now we need to solve this. But I literally told myself in that moment, boom, I we, we train our coaches, and we've worked with 10,000 people in our coach program. Flip the switch. Invite the best, most heroic version of yourself to be present. And for us, it's, I've studied the Alexander technique and, you know, you pull the thread through your head, you assume yeah. a dignified posture, you deepen your breathing, you get your mental focus tight and you have that, that internal presence of strength and power that I imagined, you know, you do countless times. Well, I do that countless times in my own way. So I do that and I don't remember saying this, but my right hand guy says, and I got tears in my eyes, that the first thing I said was, Mr. Balshan the heroic gods have blessed us with an opportunity to practice our philosophy. Boom. <laughs> and in that moment, I doubled down on everything I do. You know, I'm meditating for an hour in the morning in an hour at night. I'm showing up and I'm practicing my philosophy at the highest possible level. Whereas the old me would have crumbled. And then, you know, I, I don't drink. My dad and his dad drank enough and my brother drank enough. But if I did, that would have been the moment I start drinking. No, 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 no. Yeah. I use that to get stronger. Um, and it's frankly one of the things I'm most proud of. The firm that we hired to navigate the process, we got it done in eight months. The average process is 24 months. We handled it with what they perceived to be so much grace and anti-fragile confidence that they hired me to keynote their partner talk. And these are $1,700, $1,800 an hour, the best in the world at what they do, because they'd never yeah. seen it. So the, the philosophy works and your philosophy works. Yours, mine, everyone's here when we work it, but we've got to get that activation going. And again, the, this is a dress rehearsal. Yeah. <laughs> Go show up. Like it's the last rehearsal before the real show. Anyway, long answer now to that's no question. The most significant challenge I've faced entrepreneur. I've faced a lot of others, none yeah. with that much grace. Um, and I share it cause it's exciting to get clarity on what Phil taught me. The worse you feel, the more committed you are to your protocol. But it begs the question that you know what your protocol is, which yeah. is what I advocate in my work. Know who you are at your best. Do that when you're at your worst. And I, and I suppose that you've you've built the muscle of that protocol in the times in the easy times as well, because when when life is you know simple, then it's easy to let those sorts of things go. It always struck me with with the kind of the work ethic of especially in the world of theater actually even more so than the world of of tv but you would you would turn up to the theater for the for the half hour call which is 35 minutes before curtain up and to be honest if you turned up at the half hour call you were late most people have been there for an hour before but to a to a man every single person is going through their warm-ups they're doing their stretches they're doing their kind of vocal prep and getting into the zone even though this is the 600th show that they've played and it's the same words coming out of their mouth it's like i'm doing this as if for the first time and, hmm. and I and I think that level of uh, of discipline and that level of technique is is so important. And when you know when I work with businesses, quite often that's quite an alien concept. It's it's like here's a here's a massive opportunity, a big a big pitch for investment or a big sales opportunity or the relaunch of the vision for the va and the values uh, for for the organisation. And you kind of say, well, so when are we rehearsing? And people are like. Well, yeah. Well, well I've, I've, I've written some bullet points. <laughs> it's like, yep. no, no, not, not good enough. Um, you, you mentioned there, uh, that you were, you were kind of ready to, to go out to, to speak. And that I think you, the word you used was anxious that you, you can get anxious before, um, speaking, obviously, I, you know, a lot of work that I do with, with organizations and individuals is, is about that kind of art of engaging and communicating. What what lessons have you learned in in your journey in in life and business that prepare you for those moments? 
Yeah, again, such a fun chat and great conversation. Great question. Again, I'm going to pull back just for a second because I was filmed for a documentary yesterday and I have a specific protocol that I work the mm -hmm. night before the prep that goes into that. But again, I, I, I think you're spot on that business leaders aren't prioritizing their protocol, their training mechanisms, how they get themselves ready to play their Super Bowl. Um, the way that athletes and entertainers like you yeah. and um, your your colleagues perform, it doesn't make any sense. And, and literally, this is the app we built. This is the heroic app. We help yeah. you get clarity on who you are at your best. And then we challenge you to be that version of you day in and day out. It's exactly what you're talking about. Um, so I literally just did that over the last 36 hours. Boom. And here we go. I'm ready to perform literally in that context. But I'm doing the same thing for each of the things I'm showing up for. Um, but then the number one thing that I've done to take that neutral energy, my physiology and your physiology and everyone's physiology should change before they step up on the real or metaphorical stage. That should happen. And for me, I used to tell myself this story that something was wrong with me. And that if I had to look back at the, the core root of my suffering, I knew none of these ideas. But then worse, I thought I was the only one experiencing my own, you know, struggles with anxiety at the time and depression at the time and all these things. Um, but recognizing that we're not alone. And then for me, the practical tip was a research study in which, uh, you know, people came in and they were given a, a stress test that would induce a lot of stress. Mm -hmm. um, public speaking was the thing they had to do. So most of us would be terrified to go perform on stage like you all do. But anyway, the groups were split into two different groups. And you've probably heard of this study. One group was told to try to calm themselves down, which is what most people think you should do before a performance like that. The other group was taught to simply say, I'm excited. Yeah. The group that was taught I'm excited way outperformed those who tried to calm themselves down by an independent panel of judges who didn't know who was what for the simple reason that feeling those feelings is a high arousal state very yeah. difficult to drop yourself down. Now I can now drop myself down because I've trained a lot. Navy SEALs can take naps on the way to being dropped into the mission and they can get themselves queued up and keyed up at the right level. You of course could, could work with that energy, but to take that high arousal state and simply shift it from the negative, something's wrong with me and oh my God, I'm gonna screw up to I'm excited, which is equally true, you're excited. And then um, for me, I found that to be really powerful um, and it's a mantra of mine. I also love to say, bring it on, which is another phrase from my coach, Phil Stutz. My potential exists outside of my comfort zone. How do I feel when I'm out of my comfort zone? By definition, uncomfortable. Therefore, of course, I want to get comfortable feeling uncomfortable. How do I do that? I say, bring it on. And I remind right. myself that this is a good feeling. I want to feel this because I want to grow, etc. Um, those are some of the ways that I've dealt with it. And then it's just reps. You know, you do enough reps of anything as Ralph Waldo Emerson says, he says the death of fear is certain, which isn't right. You're still going to have that fear, which is wise and the energy to to honor your commitments, to put on a good performance, you know. But anyway, those are some of the tools I've learned and practiced that have most helped me. And I'll repeat, I used to be scared of everything. Any level of confidence I have now is earned, you know, like uh, I was never that confident kid that felt comfortable talking about anything. You know what I mean? Um, do but you, that has really helped me, the things that I do. Do you associate with being a, an introvert or an extrovert? Like, what's what's your comfort zone? Uh, I like, um, who's the one who said, I, I like the idea of being an ambivert. I like being yeah. what the situation demands. Mm -hmm. So I want to play my role well. And, and frankly, default, I really like my time. I really like reading. I really like thinking. I really like hanging out with my wife and my kids. So I would... I would kind of err on the introvert, yet I also love people. And although I don't usually want to be around people when cho when I'd make a choice, I always feel great <laughs> when I do, you know, and I've learned that enough times. And I feel called to um, continue to cultivate the ability to um, do what needs to get done. But my whole thing is you got to know what the situation demands. So if it's yeah. being energized like I am right now, then be that. But I meditate deeply and I love that you're going to your retreat and, and it's energized tranquility. Yeah. You know, it's a calm confidence and to be able to flip the switch and be, um, you know, what the situation demands, um, is, is what I've, 
um, really tried to practice and, and training my recovery um, mm -hmm. is really important to me. So things like sleep, breath, meditation, um, etc. Yeah, I think that that's that idea of the switch is so important. Uh, and and I, I, I probably say I feel very similar in, in terms of I can be uh, extroverted when needed you put me on stage and uh, and i'll and i'll light it up but actually you know that that recovery time is so important where you're off and you're not engaging and that you can just slip out of the back door and get out into nature and and disconnect so uh, that that's lovely to hear that that there's kind of parallels there um you you've mentioned phil stutz a couple of times in in the conversation now and and i know i, I watched a, an interview that you did with phil and I, I could see a very kind of deep emotional connection that that you have um with him on a on a human level um there is there is the the act of performance and then there is the support team that sits behind that and and obviously you've invested in in that support team when you're thinking about people that are starting out on this journey how do you recommend that people develop that team around them um and and you know what elements should they have to to make sure that they get the support that they need hmm yeah, I feel blessed. And Phil Stutz, if you haven't seen Stutz to repeat, just he's a treasure. Um, feel blessed to have him in my life. Um, I I personally just immerse myself in the available wisdom. I, I think that there's the personal relationships that I've been blessed to have with Phil and a couple of other really great mentors. And I think all of us have had those moments mm -hmm. that we want to celebrate. And we also want to be worthy of. We want to do the hard work to be a good mentee a good protege you know that that that, it, that an individual with whom we want to work is excited to work like that's i think an underappreciated aspect of that intensity i'm talking about and the clarity and the willingness to go all in and to do the hard work people respond to that um so be interesting be be committed to being um excellent, great at what you do and have a vision that's compelling for you, that there's a magnetism to that, um, both with mentors and colleagues and whether it's investors or clients. And again, it's activating what I would call your soul force, your moral charisma that, that creates, without getting weird about it, a magnetism to ideas and opportunities and people. People want to be around people who are living like that. You know, yeah. there's just a, a, a natural experience there. Um, so I think do the work, everything we've been talking about. Who are you at your best? Get clarity on that. Recommit to being that version of you. I focus on the basics, eating, moving, sleeping, breathing, focusing your mind. Um, and again, show up like you mean it. Like there, There's a level of, of uh, power to that that's hard to overstate. Um, uh yeah. And Steve Martin, be so good. They can't ignore you. Cal Newport's great book on the subject. You know, everyone wants the tip. Oh, yeah, get an agent. How do I become a comedian is what the young comedians would say. Steve Martin's like, I know what you want to hear, which is all right. Yeah, you get an agent and you do this and you do that. But the answer is be so good. They can't ignore you. Yeah. Have such a strong presence in your life and such a commitment to living for something bigger than yourself and a commitment to your craft and, and making your life part of your craft and being a wise and disciplined and loving and courageous human being. Um, and of course, figure out the details that are important tactically, whether it's the agent, if you're a comedian or performer um, or a mentor, if you're aspiring to do anything. But I think it starts with that that commitment to cultivating our own consciousness and beingness. I love that. Uh, your your kind of big project at, at the moment is your new book. Um, what's what's the big idea that you want to share with the world? Yeah, so the, the name of the book is Arate, which is the one word answer, the ancient Stoics and the ancient Greek philosophers, whether it's Aurelius and Seneca and Epictetus, or Aristotle, Plato, um, and Socrates, um, it's what they'd give to the question of how to live a good life. So we translate the word arete as virtue or excellence, um, but it means something closer to being your best self moment to moment to moment. Um, and the big idea is 
if you're capable of being this and I'm drawing a line in my eyes for those who are just listening yeah. and you're being this, and there's a gap of a foot between who you could have been and who you're being in any given moment. And I'm not talking about who you think you should have been over the last 25 or 50 years. I'm talking about right now in this moment, did you express the best version of yourself or not? And if there's a gap between who you could have been and who you're actually being, it's in that gap in which anxiety, regret, disillusionment, and depression exists. If you close the gap, if you live with arte and you express the best version of yourself, there's no room for that negative stuff. You feel what Aristotle described as the summum bonum, the greatest good of life. You have a sense of eudaimonia, which means good soul. It's a deep sense of grounded, joyful, meaningful, purposeful happiness. And you get that moment to moment to moment. That's the ultimate kind of message of the book combined mm -hmm. with, and the subtitle is activate your heroic potential. I firmly believe that every single performance you ever put on, I'm certain nearly all of them or some of them may have been tragedies, but they were hero <laughs> stories in large part featuring an individual yeah. facing challenges. And when we watch these truly heroic movies, what we see is ourselves metaphorically represented on the screen. So, my whole thing is live with Arte. The moment you do, you are heroic. Um, activate your potential in service to something bigger than yourself. And of course, the book walks through how to go about doing that, integrating ancient wisdom, modern science, moving you from theory ideas to practice to mastery, not someday, um, but today. So the, uh, the, the third paragraph of Arte begins with the sentence, and I'm just going to quote it. I want to start by telling you a little story. Um, and I absolutely love the, the story about your son that, that follows. Um, you've mentioned storytelling a couple of times. You've mentioned the hero's journey. Um, you were uh, in uh, the, the film Finding Joe. Why is storytelling so important when it comes to our success? You know, it's interesting because I've never considered myself a good storyteller. I've been told that I'm a good storyteller, but I've always had this idea, like my the hardest class for me at UCLA, it was a two unit class that I thought would just be, ah, right, let's go. It was by far the hardest class I ever took on screenwriting. I couldn't do it. I literally could not create a story in the way that it, I perceived it at the time and frankly still yeah. have a residue of. Um, so I've never considered myself skilled at telling a story for the sake of telling a story. Mm -hmm. Now, in this particular case, I was trying to come up with, I had written the whole book, an arte, how do you spell it? How do you pronounce it? Why are you naming your book that? That's insane, you know what I mean? I'm like, I got I hear you. But it's the one word, it's the answer. It never, that word never should have left our cultural lexicon. We gotta bring yeah. it back, you know? But anyway, how do you explain this? How do you get out the gate, you know? And, and then that morning, my son had an experience that I share in the book, Goosebumps, and it was one of those, oh my gosh, this is it. And I literally, I, I wrote that and the, and the chapters that followed it, I didn't say this in the book, while waiting for him while he was playing those games. Wow. So I drafted those three chapters over the, and four or five chapters over the span of five hours waiting for him. And um, it just became the perfect story. So I've been told that I'm a you know, reasonably good storyteller, but I've never perceived myself that way. I'm just trying to reach people and, and clearly, intellectually, and this is what you do and you've studied it and you can reflect back why it works. Um, but I've just tried to help people. I've just tried to figure out a way to communicate in a world where everyone's really busy. So can I get to the point, more wisdom and less time, get in, get out, try to make mm -hmm. it personal, uh, which has been a practice because I used to be more abstract and clinical about it. And I've tried to deliberately talk about my own challenges and my kids and all that. Um, but it was very, um, and I don't like the word authentic in general, but in this case I do. And the etymology of authentic, of course, comes from the same root. Authentic comes from the same root as author. author. So we want to be the, the, the author of our own lives, you know? Mm -hmm. So to be willing to tell a true story without trying to tell a story, yeah. I think is why that particular story worked. <laughs> it was mm -hmm. genuinely like, no, this is, this is it. Let's go. And I find that when I get excited about something like that, it, it comes through um, more than the content per se. There's an energy to it, which, by the way, briefly is what Phil and I come back to all the time. It's what he teaches his performers is that you got to be willing. He says that people are going to feel your energy, your soul force 
more than the content. The content matters and I got enough content, but it's your energy. It's the yeah. transmission of that. And his, his adage is you got to over-prepare and then walk off the edge. You can't know what you're going to say next. Mm -hmm. And I think of um, Joaquin Phoenix, who's another one of his publicly known clients yeah. and his performance of the Joker. And it's like, that is what Phil has been telling me for the last, uh, it's the living embodiment. of You can't rehearse that. No. Of course he did, but that performance, there's no rehearsal it, but... of that. Yeah. That was so walking over the edge and you don't know what's going to come next. And you feel that there is true mm -hmm. crazy. <laughs> it's just like, oh my goodness, that person's doing it. They went for it. Long answer. But um that's how i've approached it um however fumblingly and inarticulately um yet i think in that case effectively because it was a very heartfelt thing and i think that heartfelt thing is so important uh, it's, a lot of people say to me i i struggle with storytelling i'm not a storyteller and yet we all have that that human experience and in order to connect with other people what we need to do is is be open to a, a, an emotional transmission of energy and that that doesn't mean like you know bearing all the skeletons in the closet or anything like that it, it just means trying to consciously engage the other person with a feeling um mm. one of the techniques that we always worked on as, as actors with the script is you know what am i trying to make the other person feel what is my emotional intention in in this moment and what once you find that it transforms the way that you communicate and i think storytelling is sometimes you know overblown because we we think of the the methodology and the the mythology and we see these amazing hollywood screenwriters and go oh that's something that i can never do but actually engaging people on a human level about a personal experience which is universal is so so powerful and that's why that mm. that initial chapter just is 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 so um touching and also illuminating in terms of helping us understand the the, the context of the book um, Brian, I, I I could chat all day. I'm, I'm absolutely loving this, uh, but we'll uh, we'll bring things to to a close. So thank you. It's been amazing uh, talking with you. One final question, if I may, um, if you could go back and give your younger self that that young man that was you know just just starting out that university undergraduate degree uh, a piece of advice, what would that piece of advice be? So there's 20 times, dude. Great question. Um, you, you know, it would be all the things we're talking about, you know, but there'd again be, there'd be that felt sense of connection and just that it's interesting because it's what Phil does for me. I think a good coach, a good mentor, a good guide can see your potential and is believable. They've helped enough people get to a point where they've really solidified who they are and how they're showing up. Um, and then they can guide you on that. Um, but I, I'd want him to see me. I was asked a similar question with the um, documentary I mentioned, uh, talking about that first grader version of me. And he wanted me to imagine that first grader and what that first grader version of me thought of this version of me. Mm. <laughs> it gives me tears in my eyes, you know? And that guy would have been proud of me. He would have looked at me and I like that guy. You know, there's a level of, dude, we got this. So I'd want to be there with him. I actually wouldn't want to say anything first. I'd want to be there and I'd want my presence to hopefully speak to. We figured it out, dude. We're good. We're living a, a great, noble life. You know, it hasn't been easy, but we did it. Um, and then, I've, of course, I teach him, you know, that the, all the things we talked about. But I'd also emphasize my psychological challenges. Ninety percent of them came from my poor physiological choices. Mm. I ate terribly. I'd order buy one pizza, get one free to have one for dinner, one for breakfast and lunch the next day. I never slept regularly or well. I rarely moved my body. I didn't take care of the basic fundamentals. And so my psychological challenges, 90% of them, I firmly believe, were rooted in my poor fundamental practices. Um, and again, science affirms this. Your gut produces 80 to 90% of your body's serotonin. When was the last time you heard that at a psychiatrist's office? You're mm. being prescribed medication to enhance your serotonin uptake and all these things. Why don't you just remove the sugar and the flour and the yeah. sugar uh, and refined foods and see where you're at? So I'd go there with them. Um, but I think I'd want my um, Ralph Waldo Emerson says, who you are speaks so loudly. I cannot hear what you say. 
So I'd want more than anything just to be with that version of myself um, and get him excited, you know, <laughs> pitch him. <on. laughs> Let's go. And then hopefully I got about 25 years off of our development cycle with some of the ideas that I've now captured here. And by the way, I wrote the book for that version of me um, and for my kids and the things and for my dad, the things I wish had been part of um, his understanding of life. Um, which is another important aspect of that emotion we want to create, for whom are we doing um, the work that we do, etc. Um, but really enjoyed our conversation and um, truly extraordinary series of questions. So bless you um, and thank you. Goosebumps. Thank you so much, Brian, for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for listening to the Why Life's a Pitch podcast. If you'd like to improve the way you pitch and communicate, I'm giving away a special gift to all my listeners. We've developed the Pitching with Impact Scorecard to help you benchmark your pitch performance in six key areas. It will take you less than five minutes to complete and you'll receive a detailed personalized report packed full of insights and ideas to help you improve and grow. Just head over to dominiccolenso.com forward slash scorecard to get started.